0: U.S. courts have long been engaged in balancing individual rights and public health protection at the state and the federal level. While many through lines of public health law endure, some long-settled understandings have been contested and disrupted during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Michelle Mello, a professor of law and of health policy at Stanford University. As part of the journal series on the fundamentals of public health, Professor Mello has co-authored a perspective article about public health law. Professor Mello, you write in your perspective article that historically, public health law has largely been state law. So what powers do states have to enact health-related laws, and what constraints limit their authority?
1: Well, the way the Supreme Court put it back in 1824 in a case called Gibbons v. Ogden is that states have the power to adopt, quote, health laws of every description, They exercise something that's called the police power. It doesn't have anything to do with law enforcement. It derives from the notion that the state acts as a governor of a polity. And as such, it is responsible for promoting public health, welfare, safety, and morals. And it can do a variety of things in order to accomplish those aims subject to certain constitutional limits.
0: And then what about the federal government? What powers does it have to regulate health matters?
1: Our constitutional design reposes far more sweeping powers for states than the federal government when it comes to health. Although states have this broad police power, the federal government only gets to act if it can tie its action to a specific and enumerated, explicit source of constitutional authority. And there are lots to choose from. Those sources of authority can be quite broad but it doesn't get to do whatever it would like to do as long as it doesn't trample individual liberties. Rather, it has to stick to its areas of jurisdiction. So, for example, the federal government gets to regulate commerce across the states, across U.S. borders, and with American Indian tribes. It gets to tax and spend, and it can attach conditions to its spending, and it can impose taxes for regulatory or behavior-altering purposes, not just to raise revenue. It can protect the national security. But just promoting the public health alone is not going to suffice. So
0: what authorities have state and federal officials typically exercised during declared emergencies? And how have those authorities been tested during the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: Yeah, so the commerce power has been the most important source of authority during emergencies. In modern pandemics, things cross state lines very readily, as we learned so painfully during COVID state action alone often isn't enough to contain an infectious agent. And so the federal government has relatively little difficulty arguing that it has authority to regulate instrumentalities of interstate commerce, like airplanes, or do other things that are necessary to avoid substantial impacts on interstate commerce. But that power isn't unlimited. The Supreme Court has imposed a number of Important limitations, most famously for our purposes in the litigation over the Affordable Care Act. But it does empower Congress to do a lot of things. The spending power more broadly has also been important in public health, and it continues to be so during COVID-19. Congress has allocated a substantial amount of federal funds to aid states and localities in their efforts to fight the disease, and it can direct them to spend those funds in particular ways and even to refrain doing things that would undermine. Congress's programmatic purposes in providing that money.
0: You talk in your article about the ways in which certain protected rights affect health and healthcare, including the First Amendment right to freedom of speech. What do physicians need to know about how their speech can and cannot be regulated in various contexts?
1: That's a broad and important question. Generally, all kinds of reasonable restrictions on the time, manner, and place of speech are permitted while content or viewpoint-based restrictions on speech usually aren't permitted and absent a compelling purpose and no narrower way of accomplishing that purpose. Perhaps the most important speech restrictions for physicians, though, have taken place in the specific context of federally funded health programs. For example, if you work in a clinic funded by federal funds that provides family planning services, the courts have repeatedly held that the government can impose restrictions on how you can speak about abortion or other alternatives to family planning services. So Congress can direct the way physicians execute programs. And part of that is that they can direct them to say or not to say specific things while they are an actor of that program. That doesn't mean they can't go home at night and support abortion rights at a protest in their free time, But it does mean that during their professional lives, there is latitude to regulate their speech.
0: And how has the First Amendment been used to justify or to contest public health policies, such as pandemic-related restrictions on gathering?
1: The First Amendment challenges to pandemic health orders have not primarily been about speech per se, although there have been some. There is a related part of the First Amendment that has to do with association, the freedom to assemble. And that has sometimes been invoked, for example, when people want to gather and protest a public health order in a way that impedes children coming to school. That would be something that would be litigated under freedom of association. But the most important way in which the First Amendment has been implicated in legal challenges during COVID by far is the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment, which prohibits Congress from making laws that burden the free exercise of religious liberty. That historically has not served as much of a bar to generally applicable public health actions, like a vaccination mandate. But with shifts in the composition of the federal courts, that has been changing.
0: And what about the right to privacy? What activities fall under privacy rights and how do they apply to medical practice and public health policy?
1: Well, privacy rights generally encompass a variety of intimate decisions that we make about important aspects of our personhood, primarily relating to childbearing, procreation, marriage, educational choices for our children in some respects, and also in the healthcare context, decisions about medical treatment itself. By far, the most important and most contested area right now is abortion rights, which the Supreme Court has nested within the privacy right in the past. That's always been a locus of contestation, not only because there's moral disagreement about abortion, but because there's disagreement about the legal basis for protecting it as a matter of constitutional right. It's, of course, not mentioned in the Constitution. It is found within the penumbras of other rights that judges have read in. And again, with changes in the composition of the Supreme Court and other courts, judicial attitudes towards reading in these kinds of rights are changing. And there's a great deal of concern in the public health community that we can expect to see abortion rights eroded by the current suite of justices.
0: Finally, and speaking of such changes, you say in your article that traditionally courts have granted substantial deference to scientific experts and government officials about the measures that are needed to protect health, but that that deference appears to be waning. So what do you expect the implications of that shift will be for public health?
1: That's the million-dollar question. So what we mean by that is that unless courts have been applying what we call strict scrutiny, which is, again, this notion that the government has to show it has a compelling, not just important, but a compelling reason for doing something, and there's no other less burdensome way to achieve it. Unless we're in that territory, courts are inclined to say when the government comes forward and says, look, this is the reason why we're taking this action. We think it's important to promote public health, and here's why. They have not dug very deeply into that reasoning. They've more or less been willing to accept the rationale. If it has some evidentiary basis, it's not crazy. The government's made a case. But in a number of cases involving religious liberty during COVID-19, the justices have seemed to really second-guess those judgments themselves, for example, about which kinds of activities are posing comparable levels of risk of spreading COVID-19. And that's been the case even when the government has come forward with quite an extensive evidentiary record defending the decisions that it has made. So what this means is that if this approach were to be applied across a range of doctrinal areas, not just when religious liberty challenges are brought, but when free speech challenges are brought, other kinds of challenges are made, we can expect to see less certainty going forward when public health officials enact an order that restricts liberty. Because it's no longer going to be the case that they kind of have a strong presumption going in that as long as they did their homework before doing this thing, and they've got a reason for it and can show it, the courts are going to back off. We seem to have, even though justices on the right are constantly proclaiming the need for courts to stay out of important social policy issues, not judicial restraint, but in our view, real judicial activism in this area of asserting and supplanting their own views in lieu of the views of public health experts. Thank you, Professor Mello.